Okay, well, good morning. It's really nice to see you all. I'm Neil, um, and it's a real... It's a real pleasure for us to be back. Um, uh, Ruth, my wife, and I and our kids were uh, here at Crossroads for five years, um, and I uh, had the privilege of being the associate pastor here. And um, it's nearly three years ago now that we uh, went back to um, our home country of England and to Oxford. And uh, it's really been a huge joy for us to be back. And uh, we want to thank you just for making us feel so welcome. It's been a really special kind of homecoming for us. And uh, we bring greetings to you from uh, the students that God has sent us to serve there. And uh, we're really uh, conscious, I think, specially conscious um, of what a privilege it is to be connected to this church. I hope you guys all know just what a privilege you all have of uh, being part of a church like this. It's a really special fellowship and a place where we have learned ever so much and uh, felt uh, ever so welcome. This morning we're going to be opening up uh, a really famous passage from the book of Romans together. But before I read it, I want to start just by trying to give you a bit of a glimpse of the situation into which Paul, our author, is writing. Diving deeply into the background to these letters that Paul wrote is part of the, uh, I guess, the, um, the warp and weft of my life now uh, as a part-time PhD student. Um, I have a chance to get to know Paul's readers and understand what life looked like for them. And as I do that, it strikes me more and more that their life experience, though different from ours in also uh, many um, uh, superficial ways, um, is really close to ours in the ways that matter most. That reality has been jumping out at me lately, uh, especially as I've been thinking about the ancient Roman obsession with controlling the future. Now, in ancient Rome, of course, that manifested itself in some very unfamiliar ways to us. I imagine there aren't that many of us who kneel down in front of the stove every morning in an attempt to control the future um, by making offerings to our household gods. Although, as I wrote this, it struck me, I do kneel down in front of the stove most mornings to clear up stray Cheerios, but that's probably not quite what, what they were doing. Um, so um, uh, that same instinct to do something, though, to make some kind of investment of effort, of our time, our resources, in an effort to force the future to give us what we want, is still what makes modern life tick, right? We may not make regular sacrifices to Zeus and the other gods that the Romans worshipped, but we do make regular contributions to our resumes and to our social media profiles and to our fitness and to our looks and to our pension plans, all in the same belief that that will guarantee for us the future that we think we deserve. And that proximity between Paul's audience and us makes the ancient evidence that none of these offerings that these people made actually made any difference at all kind of poignant. When you read an inscription on the grave of a Roman child whose distraught parents thought that they had done everything that was necessary to protect her, only to find that she was just as vulnerable to disease as anybody else. When you read the, uh, the words of a Roman general who made all the necessary offerings before heading into battle and led his troops to horrible defeat... It's heartbreaking because it's a portrait of our own inability to make the future give us what we think it should. The Romans even had a special way to make sense of this tragically familiar experience. They deified chance. 
And they position chance as a goddess above all their other gods in terms of ultimate authority, much though it pained them to do it. They acknowledged that nothing and no one could ultimately resist her. Because when all their offerings to their other gods were done, they still lived, and they knew it, in a random and a futile world. And that randomness and futility had the final say. And though it pains us to acknowledge it too, we also experience that randomness and futility, don't we? Our world is a world where great chains of carefully crafted effort can be wiped out in a single minute mistake. Our world is a world where great loves are ended by senseless accidents. Our world is a world where great friendships are broken by unintended misunderstandings. Our world is a world where great plans come crashing down. It's horrendous, isn't it, if we've actually tasted anything of that for ourselves. And I'm assuming that almost all of us have. And of course, we carefully shield ourselves from this reality by choosing our role models um, to be people who, by some quirk of the mathematics of randomness, have been blessed to avoid disaster in the areas where we most want to succeed. The model, the professional sportsman, the successful entrepreneur, the power mum. But in the end, aren't they too actually just the exception that proves the rule? There are so few people like this to follow because failure to reach those heights, I'm afraid to say, is almost inevitable. These role models that we look up to aren't the only people who have the talent or who have made the effort necessary to succeed. There are many of those. Now, our role models are just the rare few who have all of these things and whose efforts have not yet been thwarted by misfortune. You see, just like the Romans, we live in a world where our desire to control the future is a helpless hostage to the intervention of chance. We live in a world that's random, that's futile, that's fallen. And I guess that leaves us asking, is that all there really is? Is that what our high hopes and our capacity to work hard towards lofty goals are really destined for? Well, this morning we're going to read a text together from the Bible that addresses this most important question. You can find it uh, in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's on page 911 if you have one of the blue church Bibles, and I'm going to read it to us now. So let's stand together to receive uh, what it is that God has to say to us this morning from his word to us. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, as we reflect on um, our neediness and fragility, it makes us aware of the fact that we are so needy of external help. And your word, this book that we have on our laps in our hands, if it's what it says it is, it is that help. It is not of this world. Uh, It's spoken to us from the God who made us to encourage and help and to teach us things about ourselves that we would never intuit, that we would not want to hear, uh, but things which are true and redeeming and life-giving. And we pray so much that the Spirit who propelled this stuff into the world, who so moved in the lives and minds of the original authors that they would write these words, might he move in our lives, in our minds, that we might hear it, that we might receive it, that we might be changed by it and blessed by it for our good and for the good of those who we know and whom we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm sure for many of us, that passage that I just read was very familiar. This letter to the Romans is one of the most frequently read, most frequently studied pieces of literature in our world. And there's a good reason for that, as Paul dictated this material for the benefit of Christians living in Rome, probably in around AD 55. He was consciously summarizing this gospel message that he and the other apostles have been preaching ever since Jesus' death and resurrection and that completely transformed their world. So here in his own words, we have the guts of this world-shaking teaching. This is the message that convinced ordinary men and women, just like us, that the God who made the world had actually entered into it to save it. This is the message that sent kind of social shockwaves rippling throughout the Roman Empire, building out of uh, groups of people who were so diverse and so kind of segregated in Roman culture that they had nothing to do with one another, uh, close-knit communities who loved one another, who served together, and then who went out and served the world around them with incredible uh, effects. This is the message that would ultimately bring the bankrupt religions of this empire uh, down to their knees. So this is beyond important. If this message of Romans is actually true, if it has any substance, it speaks directly to our experience of living in a fallen and a futile world. It tells us that that fallenness and futility is not going to have the final word in our story. And the passage that we just read sets the table for this extraordinary good news. Here in the introduction to Romans, we discover that this gospel message is not founded as maybe we might expect on some kind of brilliant psychological insight or some kind of amazing philosophical breakthrough or some kind of groundbreaking piece of technology. It's founded on a person. The person is Jesus of Nazareth, and it's good news, revolutionary news, because of who this Jesus is. Paul introduces Jesus Jesus to us here as the Son of God. And in verses 3 and 4 of our text, which are going to be our focus this morning, he points to two distinct bodies of evidence that support this radical idea. In verse 3, you'll see that he tells us Jesus was a descendant of David. And then in verse 4, you'll see that he tells us Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Both of these two bodies of evidence speak to us about Jesus' identity as a son of God. 
And if we look at them the way that Paul did, I think we're going to find that they preview the amazing realities that lie in store in the rest of this great letter. If we want to face the fallenness and futility of our world with the confidence that God gave to his apostles 20 centuries ago, Jesus' relationship to David and his resurrection from the dead hold the keys. So our plan this morning is simply to open up these two bodies of evidence with God's help. We're going to start with the first one in verse 3, where Paul traces Jesus' roots back to David. And I uh, said in the first service, I, I'm, I apologize now that for those of you who used to be here at Crossroads, this is going to be one of those sermons um, where there's probably way too much information. So um, take a sip of whatever legal stimulant you have brought with you. And, uh, I said to the others, I'm not coming back for stragglers. So, um, um, so if you're ready, let's, let's, let's get after this. The first thing I think Paul wants to do here is to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God in exactly the same way that each and every one of us is a son or a daughter of God. I don't know whether you ever think of yourself in those terms. Paul begins by placing the stress on Jesus' earthly life. And that's going to be very significant to the shape of the good news that the rest of this letter proclaims. Back at the beginning of our Bibles, you'll remember this very important detail in the creation story. After speaking the heavens and the earth and all the plants and birds and fish and animals into existence, God takes a deep breath and then he says something that he hasn't said anywhere or to anyone in the story so far. He says, let us create mankind in our image, in our likeness. And we can see how serious he is about that because he immediately delegates a series of tasks to us which previously have belonged to him alone. God makes us rulers, namers, cultivators, protectors. He even gives us the blessing of bearing and raising up children made in our own images. Men and women like us received a unique set of privileges at the start of this story as kings and queens over the world, as sons and daughters of the God who made it. And here at the beginning of Romans, Paul stresses the fact that those are privileges that Jesus shares. That Jesus at the center of this earth-shaking good news is a human being just like us. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Because that set of uniquely human gifts which Jesus shares with our distant ancestors in Genesis 1 and 2 isn't marred by the disaster of Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2 proclaim our privileges But Genesis 3 proclaims our problem. We don't want to just be made in the image of God. We want to be God. And from that point forward, the unsustainable consequences of that irrational and ungrateful desire that we all have have been stalking our every step. If we want to know where the fallenness and the futility that surrounds us comes from, I'm afraid we only have to look inside ourselves. But where we've totally botched this privilege of living in God's world as kings and queens and sons and daughters, Jesus totally hasn't. This is the earthly life that Paul is talking about here. A life like ours, but different in that it was everything that God intended it to be. Later in the letter, this fact is going to become a critical ingredient in Paul's message. Unlike us, Jesus did not deserve to endure the kind of fallenness and futility that we do. He deserved a life where things work out, where the good prevails, 
a perfect world, a rational world, the kind of world that we find ourselves longing for when the wheels come off. That was his by right. And it all gets pretty exciting when we find out what it was that he planned to do with those rights. But that's for later. You see, there's more here in verse 3 than just a declaration of the fact that Jesus was a legit human being with a pulse like us. If that was all Paul was setting out to prove, I guess he would have said that uh, Jesus was a descendant of Adam. But here in the introduction to Romans, he tells us that Jesus is a descendant of David. And that's because he has something much bigger that he wants to say. Paul doesn't just want to tell us that Jesus was a human like us, but free from all the selfishness and stupidity that makes our lives a misery. No, Paul wants to tell us that Jesus was a king, a king like David, and free from all the selfishness and stupidity that made his life a misery. And that has enormous implications for us. You guys have been working your way through a series of sermons on the life of David this summer from the MP3s that we listened to in Oxford and from the great message that we heard from Ryan here last week. We realize that you've been treated to a great feast and I don't feel any uh, kind of embarrassment then in assuming that you all know why the reason, you know the reason why David's reign came to be seen as a kind of golden era in Israel's history. If you cast your mind back over what you've heard this summer, uh, you'll remember David's story plays out for the most part against the backdrop of his relationship with his predecessor, Saul. And uh, life under the reign of Saul was pretty rough, right? It started off promising, you know, with the people having their hopes, you know, big hopes and this big guy with a big kind of sword who was going to win big against their enemies and kind of really put them on the map. But as soon as Saul got just a taste of that adulation, it began to kind of unpick him. It was like a drug And he quickly became a hopeless addict. He stumbled from battle to battle, desperate to get the next hit of praise. And when David appeared on the scene and started taking the plaudits that Saul felt he deserved, he totally couldn't handle it. He lost control. He stopped thinking about his people, if he ever had been thinking about his people. And he became consumed with the question of how to stay in the limelight. Nothing else mattered to him. And if you were an ordinary citizen living under this sadly quite typical vision of kingship, it's not hard to imagine how life uh, would have become pretty miserable, isn't it? What you would have wanted was stability, I imagine, so you could plant your crops and make plans for the future. You would have wanted safety so that you could live without the fear that the Philistines would come running over the hill and attack your village and carry your children off to be slaves. You would have wanted leadership from a king whose life was on a firm footing in submission uh, to the God of the Bible. But under Saul, sadly, you didn't get any of that. Life was unstable. Who knew when the next call up to military action would come, whether there would be any realistic prospect of winning if it did. Life was unsafe. If all of us were Israelites living under Saul, half the people in this room would have lost homes or livelihoods or sons and daughters because of his recklessness. And none of it was guided by the kind of careful, self-suspicious advice that the Bible provides for kings. Life under Saul was just this kind of slow-motion train wreck. And that helps us see something about uh, David and the importance that he has for us in the Bible story. 
You see, David has many faults, it's true, and those things are there to teach us. That's a really important part of what he's there to show us in God's word. But we mustn't get so focused there that we miss the contrast between life under Saul and life under David, his successor. David's people loved him because he changed their lives. He brought them that security that they craved. By the end of his reign, we read that Israel was surrounded by these fortress cities and they'd either beaten or negotiated all their enemies into submission. The days of unexpected Philistine invasions were gone. Parents saw their uh, children and their grandchildren growing up to take their places. And over all of it, there was a leader who was living for the most part in submission to the good rule of God. What a blessing it must have been to live in a kingdom like that. Can you get the, the sense of it? No wonder the Jews were looking forward to the day when a true son of David would take the throne again. And I think that's part of what Paul is driving at here. Would there be an equivalent perhaps in America today? If a presidential candidate could only be found who was a true son or daughter of one of the greats of the past, a Lincoln, a Washington, a Roosevelt, imagine the lift there would be in your spirits knowing that your future was entrusted to such a person, at least for their period in office. Well, I think that's, what part of, that's part of what Paul is going for here. Paul is telling us that is actually our situation. But it's better than that. Because just as we saw with Jesus' humanity, his kingship is better than the prototype that points to it. In the end, David's faults as a man and as a father did have an impact on the people that he ruled. You guys all know about the murder of Uriah and the rebellion of Absalom and the way that the sins of the father played out in the life of the son under Solomon, how that catapulted Israel ultimately towards disaster. And David was the best of Israel's kings. But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus will never do that to you. Jesus' leadership has all of the good things that we see in David raised to the nth degree and none of the bad things. At this very moment, on the throne of heaven, there's a king who is selfless from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And if he's our king, we can have confidence that he knows what we need. If he's our king, we can rest assured that he's not going to take his eye off the ball and make a bunch of reckless decisions like Saul did. If he's our king, we can trust him to see further than us and to lead us tenderly Even if we don't always understand where he's going, he's like a shepherd leading his sheep. She don't necessarily know where they're going. Is that a comfort to you today? I really hope that it is. It's certainly been a huge comfort to us, uh, to our family in these last few months as the waves of fallenness and futility have come crashing over us. Jesus, and not chance, is on the throne of our lives. And we can trust him. We'd be ashamed not to trust him. Uh, given all the ways that he's helped us in the past. And because he's on the throne, we're spared from many of the burdens and questions that our non-Christian friends are forced to deal with when things go wrong. You know, was all this some kind of terrible mistake? Have we missed the chance to do something useful with our lives now? Is there anything that we can do to kind of make things right? Is there anything that we can do to control what happens next? That's the kind of stuff that tortures us when we reach out and grasp the supposed freedom of living without God. But the kingship of Jesus just closes all those dead ends down. We can trust him that he's led us to where we've got to in life, each and every one of us. 
We can trust him still to work through the sorrows and joys that those things have brought us. We don't have to know why he's doing what he's doing because he sees further than we see and he knows more than we know. If we're satisfied, like Paul was, that Jesus has proved himself to be a king on David's model, we can lean on him with the same confidence that David's people felt. But there's still more for us here as we think about verse 3 and this connection between Jesus and David. Certainly it reminds us of Jesus' humanity, and it points us also to his royalty. But none of that really gets to the heart of what makes David uh, such a central character in the developing plotline of the Bible. Sure, David was a great human being in many ways and a great king, but his life points forward to something more wonderful than just the perfection of these human attributes. David's life points forward to something, to someone superhuman who God had always planned to lead out onto the stage of his world when the time was right. For millennia, God had been planning things, shaping things in readiness for the coming of his son. And David's life is one of the major signposts along that journey that's pointing, pointing towards him. Think with me for a minute about that best known of all the David stories, the confrontation between David and Goliath. Undoubtedly, that has all kinds of lessons to teach us about David's human character and by extension, the character of every faithful Christian. He's brave. He's willing to go against the flow. He believes that the God who has been faithful to him in the past will be faithful to him in the present. And he's prepared to stake his life on that conviction. But does that set of lessons really exhaust or actually even begin to scratch the surface of the true meaning of the story? As David, the anointed leader of God's people, steps forward weak and vulnerable, attracting skepticism from his friends and derision from his enemies to engage in representative combat with this satanic giant, one man fighting on behalf of all with the destiny of the whole nation resting on his shoulders? Is that teaching us lessons that are really relevant to us and to the challenges that we face? Are those the kind of burdens that we can bear? I don't think so. The characters whose experience is really relevant to us in that story, I'm afraid, are the the Israelite soldiers hiding behind their shields up on the hillside, terrified of what Goliath is going to do to them and utterly powerless to do anything about it. Now, in this story, and in many others as well, David has much less to teach us about us than he has to teach us about God's Messiah. And that is a strictly superhuman role. You see, the Bible doesn't shield us from the reality that the fallenness and futility that we experience in this life is something that we cannot solve. The problem is far too deep and profound for that. Even with the most amazing insights into ourselves, even with the deepest commitment to change, I hate to be so negative about it, but that's the message of Romans. That's the message of our Bibles. Men and women crafted by God to bear the most wonderful, precious privilege in the universe, to be his representatives, to be his sons and daughters. We threw it back in his face, and now the thing is broken. There isn't any going back. We're not the blessing to God's world that he intended. We're a curse in God's world. We're like a kind of disease in God's world. And the only reason the Bible is a hopeful book in the end is that it looks for a solution from outside the mess. 
The Bible makes the staggering claim that the God who created the whole thing in the first place has a plan to step into his creation to save it. And the major function of David in that larger story is to show us how he plans to do it. So are you feeling some of the excitement that Paul must have felt as he narrated these words, as he dictated them, knowing that uh, uh, the Jesus um, that these stories pointed forward to had actually come? Paul's message is good news regarding God's son who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. His message is that this long-awaited intervention from outside our world has actually happened. God himself stood on the ground that he spoke into existence. He breathed the air that he himself invented. And he achieved something that no ordinary human being could ever achieve. He faced the satanic giant of human selfishness and stupidity as one man fighting on behalf of all. And despite the skepticism of his friends and the derision of his enemies, he knocked that monster down. Here then is hope for us if we know anything about the pain of living in a fallen and a futile world. Our best efforts can't do anything about it. That's kind of the essence of futility, isn't it? That it rides roughshod over our best efforts as if they never happened. Sadly, that's the future for every self-help program, for every psychological magic bullet, for every effort we make to reform. Valuable though all of them may be, they don't get at the root of the problem, and so they will never solve it. But none of that applies to Jesus. If he is the true son of David, the giant slayer, All bets are off. Who can say what he can't do? Who can say who he can't save? But this expectation for a greater son of David isn't just encoded into the stories of David's life. It's also made explicit in the promises that he receives. You might remember that text 2 Samuel 7, when David tells God about his plan to build a house for him, a temple, and God reveals his plan to build a house for David, a royal house, a royal dynasty. I myself will establish a house for you, he says. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will be his father, and he will be my son. That's the expectation that's floating around this phrase, the son of David, that plays such an important role in our Bibles. It's not just that a good king descended from David will come again to govern Israel and deliver them from their enemies. It's the expectation that one day there will be a divine king whose throne and kingdom will last forever. That's the point, I think, that Paul is driving at here in Romans. That's why Jesus' credentials as the son of David support Paul's claim that he's actually the son of God. And that's why all the hopes that we've talked about here for something beyond the fallenness and futility of our world have real cash value. Fallenness and futility don't have the final word because someone who is not bound by the rules of fallenness and futility, someone who actually has the power to challenge them, the power to overcome them, has strode out onto the stage now. Everything that David pointed to is fulfilled in him. But the connection between Jesus and David can only take us so far. And Paul knows it. 
Remember, he has two bodies of evidence that he's going to draw on here as he introduces his gospel. And it's the second body of evidence that we read about in verse 4 that we're going to think about now as we seek to follow in his footsteps. Jesus' identity as the Son of God can be glimpsed in the fact that he's descended from David, but it's kind of shouted from the rooftops in his resurrection from the dead. And this helps us resolve one of the real puzzles in this text. If you've ever attended a Bible study on Romans 1, the problematic section is right there in verse 4, isn't it? Where Paul tells us that through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus was appointed the Son of God when he rose? Is he saying that Jesus wasn't the Son of God beforehand and that he was elevated to that status as a kind of well-done graduation moment? You know, it doesn't seem from the rest of what Paul wrote that he can possibly mean that. But now I think we're equipped to see why. You see, the focus here isn't on the contrast between Jesus' qualifications as a genuine human proved by his relationship to David and then his qualifications as the Son of God proved by his resurrection from the dead. Both of those two things tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. The difference is simply that the second one, the resurrection, proclaims it with power. And there's no arguing with that logic, is there? What could prove the reality of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God more powerfully than rising from the dead? Making living things out of dead things has been God's signature move since the very beginning of the story. Jesus showed he could do it for other people on several occasions during his earthly ministry, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Lazarus. And every time, the people who witnessed it knew exactly what it meant. But walking out of a tomb unaided after Roman crucifixion, that really, as we say in England, takes the biscuit. (laughs) Who is this guy? You know, if not only the winds and waves obey him, but even death itself is powerless to hold him down. But not even that is the reason why Paul calls on this piece of evidence in the introduction to his gospel. The reason Paul makes this amazing reality, the strapline for Romans, is what it tells us about the fallenness and futility of our world that we were speaking about right back at the start. Because death is the end game of that fallenness and futility, isn't it? Every disappointment, every senseless accident, every wounding, unnecessary, destructive remark along the way, hurtful though they are, and real though the damage that they cause is, these things are just kind of flashes forward to the true weight and horror of our fallen situation. A life discontent with bearing the image of God, a life that's determined to actually be God, is a life that ends in separation from God life that ends in death. The fallenness and futility of our world has the power not just to frustrate us, not just to slow us down. It has the power. It has the right to put the lights out. It has the right to win. It has the right to rob us of our loved ones and our loved ones of us. And that's what this resurrection of Jesus challenges Jesus is seen to be the Son of God who made us and who loves us nowhere more clearly than in this, that he who earned the right to avoid death, which is inevitable for us, traded those rights for ours and died that we might live and rose that we might rise. What we see when we look at the resurrected Jesus is what each of us will see in the mirror one day if we trust him a life 
that has passed beyond the jurisdiction of the judgment that we deserve, a new kind of life, an everlasting life, new life in a new world where things will work out, where hard, honest effort will find its just reward, where parents will see their children and grandchildren grow up strong and useful, a world where the wreckage of our hopes will be transformed by this story, into a story of the goodness and creativity and boundless mercy of the God who thought of it all in the first place. These are the truths that these two bodies of evidence here in Romans reveal and that the rest of the letter goes on to flesh out. The Son of God hinted at and foreshadowed in the life of David and now placarded before us in the resurrection offers us forgiveness and eternal life in a kingdom as far beyond what we can imagine as it is far beyond what we could ever deserve. This is the good news regarding his son that Paul has the responsibility to proclaim. And this is the good news which is here for us to receive. But that's not quite the end of what Paul wants to share with his Roman readers in the introduction to this letter. And as I close, I thought I might just uh, give a few pointers to the way that Paul sees all this stuff working out in the here and now. You see, the message that Paul sets himself to proclaim here has already had consequences in his own life. Not just consequences that affect his concept of the future, this you know, longing, this, this expectation for a resurrected life beyond death, but consequences for the way that he actually lives in the present. Even in this chaotic world where things go wrong, and not only other people, but actually we ourselves as Christians make all kinds of mistakes, Paul found a new way forward. He wasn't just kind of flogging on with things, trying to suppress the questions about whether it was all worth it, hoping against hope that if he just kept his head down, darkness and death would kind of never find him. No, Paul had a new set of marching orders in this world that faced that world with honesty. This was a direct consequence of the gospel that he was proclaiming. He had been called, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God, as we read in verse 1. Now, this calling that Paul describes here was clearly unique to him in its specific details. None of us are called to be apostles or set apart for the gospel of God like he was. But the bigger picture here is still important for us, because this calling that Paul describes is actually the antithesis, the antidote to the futility that we've been talking about, even as we continue to live in this world. You see, futility essentially says to us that our lives are random, right? That's what the ancient Romans discovered. When things go wrong for no reason, when people who deserve to be rewarded suffer, and people who court suffering are rewarded, the conclusion that's being pushed into us is that the whole thing is totally meaningless. It isn't going anywhere. There isn't any ultimate point to it at all. But do you see that the possibility of calling totally confounds that narrative? If there's such a thing as calling in life, there's a caller. And if there's a caller, there's some kind of external basis for believing that our efforts here are actually worthwhile. Calling is the difference between a meaningless and a meaningful world. If people can be called, there is a path through the futility to significance. And it's a different path from the paths that our world is offering us. You see, it's painfully obvious to us in Oxford that very few people can actually live with the idea that everything we do is futile. And so we have all kinds of defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from this, right? 
We persuade, us well, we persuade ourselves that kind of raging against the machine, uh, confronting irrationality with rationality is kind of heroic. And it's um, you know, all for the good of society. But if that's our ultimate basis for doing the right thing, it all gets pretty tricky when our visions of what's heroic actually clash. And who's to say that even advancing society is such a good thing when there are so many different visions of society and humanity as a whole does such a uh, destructive job, even at its best, of looking after God's world. Some people pin their hopes on better health care or better insurance to limit or mask the extent of their fragility, but it always gets around our defenses in the end. Some people turn inwards, hoping that better self-understanding will give them this sense of progress that they're looking for. Some people turn outwards and put their hope maybe in politicians or national systems to somehow alter the balance of power between us and our selfishness and deal us a willing hand. But Paul has something far bigger and far more realistic in mind than this kind of wishful thinking. Paul believes that even before he gets to share in this resurrection that he hopes for in the future, he is called by a king who has fallenness and futility by the throat in the present. Paul doesn't make understanding everything that happens uh, the price of his confidence in this. He knows that the king who's called him is a shepherd who knows better than he knows and who sees further than he sees and who has a track record of bending and forcing the effects of evil into good. How could he doubt it, having seen Jesus swallow the apparently monstrous waste of his own crucifixion and turn it into the best and most life-giving gift the world has ever seen? Paul didn't need to place his hope in a placebo like raging against the machine or screw up his face in an effort to believe this lie that there was anything he could do himself to make his life worthwhile. Paul believed he was called by a saviour who stood above the circumstances of life and who could turn things that were intended to harm him into good for the saving of many lives. That's what calling meant for Paul. And it's with that knowledge that I want us to hear how Paul thinks it plays out for us if we accept the son of David, the son of God, as our king and our savior. Though we're not called to be apostles, it doesn't change the fact that we're still called. Look down at verse 6, and there you'll find that along with Paul's readers in Rome, we also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And if there's such a thing as calling for us, there's a caller. And if there's a caller, there's an external basis for believing that our lives are worthwhile even in the mess. If people can be called, there's a path through that futility to significance. If people can be called, a saviour has arisen who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. If people can be called, the causal link between our selfishness and our suffering is broken. He paid the price for our sin on the cross. And whatever the world throws at us now, our lives are filled with hope and meaning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we hear these texts that uh, you will have been bringing into our minds our own experiences of the brokenness and fallenness of the
the world that you entrusted to us and that we've done such a bad job of looking after. Lord, it's heartbreaking as we think about people we've lost, um, mistakes that we have made, um, situations which are all but unrecoverable. We bring before you our sorrow with it. These things are really wretched. And yet this text speaks to us that somehow even in all of that, you are a God who is so far beyond our understanding that you can take that and, and fashion it and form it for good, that you can use it somehow if we will be surrendered to you to point to uh, beautiful, whole, good and true things, things that will always, always last. And beyond this world, there is then hope that it won't always be like that, that we won't always be just the ruins that we are today, that the burned out shell of your image in us, which we still bear, will one day be resurrected, re remade, refashioned, that we will be sons and daughters of God again because the one who really was shared it, gave it, exchanged his rights for ours. And our hearts are just full of praise for him. What an amazing king, what an amazing savior that he would do that. We pray that you would help us just to put our lives in his hands to not make knowing where we're going or why things are happening, the price of our surrender, but just to say, look, you're my shepherd, Jesus, and uh, my hand is in yours. I want to go wherever you lead me. And we pray that as that works itself out in our lives, that that would just draw others who don't know you to him and to that amazing good news uh, because we long for others to know him, to trust him, and to share this blessing. In Jesus' name, we pray.